Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. For the better part of the last decade... Science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Sharon Martinetti, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. In the 1970s, Vanetta McGee was one of the top actresses in the burgeoning blaxploitation movement. She could do it all. And she did. Romantic comedies, westerns, horror, Italian films, American films, you name it. She shared the screen with Sidney Poitier. She matched wits with Clint Eastwood. She was even the inspiration behind Cleopatra Jones. But by the 90s, McGee's star had faded into obscurity. She appeared in small roles in film and television, but her private struggles with both her health and the industry itself conspired to keep her away. Even today, a decade after her passing, a Google search of her name will prompt, whatever happened to Vanetta McGee? Well, I'll tell you, because this is the story of Vanetta McGee. Vanetta McGee was born on January 14, 1945 in San Francisco, California. She was named after her father, Lawrence. So, yeah. Her full legal name was Lawrence Vanetta McGee Jr. While the family lived in San Francisco, the young McGee often spent summers with her father's family in Mississippi or her mother's family in Oklahoma. As a child, she was bright, curious, and loved to read. After graduating from San Francisco Polytechnic High School, McGee attended what is now San Francisco State University. Her family had always encouraged her to become a lawyer, so... McGee enrolled to study pre-law. But once at school, McGee encountered the theater group Aldridge Players West. Founded in 1964 by UC Berkeley instructor Henrietta Harris, the troupe was named after Ira Aldridge, the 19th century African-American actor who became one of the greatest Shakespearean performers in history. Harris founded the troupe to give Black actors their own theater, something that was sorely missing in San Francisco at the time. The troupe performed not only in the city, but at historically black colleges across the country. It was there McGee fell in love with acting. She completely abandoned the pre-law plan. In fact, she just dropped out of college entirely. She moved to Rome in the 1960s to seek work at Cinecitta Studios, the beating heart of the Italian film industry. It was a gutsy move, and one that paid off. She was cast in the romantic comedy Faustina, in the title overall, and as the widow Pauline Middleton in El Grande Silencio, otherwise known as The Great Silence. C'è un uomo che fa tremare i cacciatori di taglie quando lo incontra. Lo chiamano Silenzio. 
perché dopo che è passato lui resta soltanto il silenzio The Great Silence is one of the bleakest westerns to come out of Italy in the 60s and 70s. The film's director, Sergio Corbucci, was known for his violent take on westerns. The movie stars Jean-Louis Trentignon as a mute gunslinger named Silence, who McGee's Pauline hires to kill the bounty hunter who killed her husband. It all goes to hell pretty quickly, and the film ends with pretty much everyone dead in the snow, except the villainous bounty hunters. McGee's work as Pauline is incredible, both for her performance and because of how progressive the role is. She's a black female lead in a Western film in 1968. Her character isn't some naive, innocent, or hardened sex worker, the two most popular archetypes for women in Westerns. Instead, Pauline is firmly in control of her own sexuality, spurning the advances of the corrupt justice of the peace, but falling in love with silence, leading to a rare interracial love scene in a Western. And when she ultimately ends up dead, so does pretty much everybody else in the film who isn't a total monster. It's the kind of performance that could make a career, but it almost didn't. 20th Century Fox had the distribution rights to the film. And when Fox executive Daryl F. Zanuck reviewed the film, he found that the pessimistic ending wouldn't play well in the United States. So the studio never distributed it in the U.S. Instead, they decided to see if they could remake it with Clint Eastwood, a concept that ultimately resulted in the film Joe Kidd. In fact, Great Silence went unseen in the United States until it was released on DVD in 2001. In fact, if it wasn't for Sidney Poitier, McGee might have stayed in Europe. After Poitier caught a screening of The Great Silence and saw McGee's immense talent and potential, he used his influence to cast her in a small part in his next film, The Lost Man. The film was based on An Odd Man Out, a 1945 novel about an IRA fugitive on the run after accidentally killing an innocent man. The Lost Man translates the plot into 1960s America making Poitiers lead a radical black activist on the run after a heist gone wrong. While the film is a suspenseful drama, Poitiers' elegant styling and the Quincy Jones score made it a forerunner into an emerging genre, black exploitation. Thank you. Bloody Mary. Are you um, into the occult? No! How about the uh, heavy stuff? What do you think of vampires? Vampires? I think they're possibly the most fascinating ball. McGee didn't care for the term black exploitation. She thought it flattened the films that fell under its purview instead of highlighting them. She preferred the term black film genre, as she told the Los Angeles Times. She said, quote, black film is the most valuable art form in pictures since Andy Warhol and Campbell soup cans because of the impact it made on the black community. Whether you say black exploitation or black film genre, McGee would soon become synonymous with it. As a young talent making her mark in the early 1970s, she was considered one of the rising stars of black cinema, on par with the likes of Pam Greer. Her first black exploitation film was Blackula, a riff on Dracula that featured African prince Malmuwalde, transformed into a creature of the night by the Count himself. McGee plays both Luva, Mamualdi's wife, and Tina, Luva's modern-day incarnation. 
The film was a smash success, becoming one of the top grossing films of 1972. Around this time, McGee met Max Julian, a multi-talented actor best known for the title role in The Mac. The two began both a romantic relationship and a working one. Julian even wrote his Cleopatra Jones screenplay for McGee. The role ultimately went to Tamara Dobson, but the two already had another project in mind. Together, they co-wrote and co-produced 1974's Thomasine and Bushrod. Sold as a black Bonnie and Clyde to Columbia Pictures, Thomasine and Bushrod is actually a Western that follows the exploits of the feared bounty hunter Thomasine, who rekindles her relationship with bandit Bushrod. The two tear across 1910s Texas, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. That's the Native American, Mexican, and rural white poor, to be exact. The real-life relationship gives the film a unique emotional texture, as the two outlaws try to keep their heads and hearts together while on the run. The film also makes Thomasine the central character. It opens from her perspective, and she's clearly in the driver's seat when it comes to both the relationship and the robberies. It's unique as a Western, as a black exploitation film, and as an entry in McGee's filmography. In an interview with the Chicago Times, McGee said, Thomasine and Bushrod was very close to my soul. We perceived ourselves as us against the world. Unfortunately, Columbia had been expecting a completely different movie and wasn't sure how to market the film they received. Thomasine and Bushrod's theatrical run was short-lived, and long before the age of DVD and streaming, the film fell into obscurity. But McGee soon had another project to occupy her time, one that had the potential to launch her into the mainstream. 1975's The Iger Sanction. The Iger Sanction began as a 1972 novel by Rodney William Whitaker, a film professor who published under a variety of pseudonyms. The Iger Sanction and its sequel, The Lou Sanction, are very clearly loving parodies of James Bond. I mean, they star an art historian and collector named Dr. Hemlock, who finances his taste for black market paintings by killing people for a secret government agency in exotic locales. Sound familiar? Universal Studios saw those Bond parallels and snapped up the film rights. Clint Eastwood took both the director's seat and the starring role, and McGee came on board to play Jemima Brown, Dr. Hemlock's love interest and fellow secret agent. While critics immediately pointed out its Bondian roots and homophobic gags, McGee received praise for her sparkling banter with Eastwood. The Iger Sanction performed admirably at the box office, but the opportunities that the film might have provided McGee, a role in a sequel or other big-budget genre film, seemed to be drying up. Her next film, 1977's Brothers, where she played a character inspired by political activist Angela Davis, was pulled from theaters due to fears of riots. In a 1977 interview with Ebony, McGee noted a marked decrease in the amount of Black-led films over the last two years. But that hardly dissuaded her. She told the magazine, It's great being a movie star and I love it, but I could do it standing on my head with one finger and my eyes closed. Instead, McGee made the decision to focus on writing and producing. Unfortunately, before she could do that, her health interfered. McGee had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at age 17. She rarely ever discussed her teenage battle with cancer, and it clearly didn't affect her acting career. 
But in the late 70s and early 80s, she took a break to focus on her health. When McGee returned to the silver screen, she did it in style. What's this? <laughs> 1984's Repo Man is a punk rock sci-fi musical comedy considered one of the ultimate cult classics. It stars Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez as a repo man in his punk apprentice, dealing with their jobs and also aliens. You know, one of the classic narratives, man versus job versus aliens. Director Alex Cox had long been a fan of The Great Silence. He even introduced the film when it debuted on British television in 1990. While casting Repo Man, he decided he had to cast McGee as the Repo Men's dispatcher. Not only did he think she was an incredible actress, he also wanted to ask her like every question he could think of about her experience on The Great Silence. After Repo Man, McGee accepted a small role on Cagney and Lacey as the wife of Marcus Petrie, a detective played by Carl Lumbly. You might know Lumbly from playing Marcus Dixon on Alias or voicing Martian Manhunter in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. The two hit it off and married in 1986. Two years later, they had a son, Brandon. McGee starred in two television shows, Helltown and Bustin' Loose, but neither lasted more than one season. After appearing on seven episodes of L.A. Law, McGee's output slowed to a crawl. But if Hollywood wasn't calling, she had other causes to pour her energy into. Undoubtedly inspired by her own struggles with her health, she and Lumbly became spokespeople for the American Lung Association. She appeared in a few more films in the 90s, like To Sleep With Anger, playing alongside her husband, but in 2001, she was diagnosed with cancer. Lumbly became a primary caregiver until 2010, when she suffered a cardiac arrest. After spending two days on life support, McGee passed away on July 9th, 2010. Looking back on McGee's career in life, it's tempting to ask what might have been. What if her health had been different? What if she'd been an actress in an era where complex, intriguing roles for black women weren't so hard to come by? What if she'd been able to write and produce her own material independently? But I think it's better to celebrate what she was able to do. Despite a teenage cancer diagnosis, family expectations of going into law, and the climate of 70s Hollywood, she found an art form she truly loved and took chances on projects that meant something to her. I hope someone finds the screenplays and stories she mentions writing in her interviews and shares them with the world. But even if that never comes to pass, we still have McGee on the silver screen breaking barriers without even breaking a sweat. Forgotten in the Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Claire McBride and read by Cher Martinetti. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at scififangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sci-Fi Fangirls. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.